Nick Austin, and on this edition of the podcast, we take a look at AI-generated content, content created with the help of artificial intelligence, and specifically how it relates to political campaigns and our democracy. A new bill right now, bipartisan bill in the Michigan House, would require disclaimers on political deepfakes. We're talking about ads. We're talking about media that mimics another person, even their voice, their image, their likeness to startling good degree. We take a look at this new bill. It would require campaign ads that use artificial intelligence to put disclaimers on their ads. It was sponsored by House Representative Penelope Cernoglu, who joined us on the program. Before we spoke with her, though, we got a chance to hear a copy of audio that she created with the help of her staff of Joe Biden, an AI version endorsing the bill. Cernoglu, it's your buddy Joe. I really like your bill that requires disclaimers on political ads that use artificial intelligence. No more malarkey. Uh, As my dad used to say, Joey, you can't believe everything you hear. Not a joke. Uh, Anyway, thank you and your committee for your leadership and the drive for more democratic elections. And give your daughter a hug for me. By the way, this statement was created using artificial intelligence. I'm talking right now with Representative Penelope Cernoglu, who's a Democrat representing the 75th District in the Michigan House of Representatives. Representative Cernoglu, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here also because I want to know specifically what this bill that you've introduced does, because a lot of people think about artificial intelligence, but we're really at the beginning of this. So, In your words, what are you attempting to do with this legislation? Absolutely. So um, we have a bill package. Um, We have several bills. Um, One of the bills addresses deep fakes, uh, which is materially deceptive media. I think we've all kind of seen um, those at this point where we think um, we're seeing a particular um, person and we think we're hearing them, um, but it's not really them. Um, And for those, uh, we're looking to um, regulate them as they apply um, to elections. Um, So if someone's putting out a deep fake that they know um, is false, Um, and it's 90 days before an election, and they're actually intending um, to harm um, the person that's depicted and influence voters uh, deceptively um, with this particular um, deepfake, then we are requiring that they put a disclaimer on there um, that says that it's materially deceptive media. Uh, And if they don't do that, um, then they could be subject um, to some penalties. We also have bills uh, that address AI-generated ads, um, so political ads. And for those, we also require a disclaimer that they're generated in part or in whole um, by AI. And uh, again, um, if people are are doing those uh, knowingly, um, trying to you know, create um, misinformation, then there could be um, some penalties there as well. Uh, And then... uh, Going even a little bit further than that, uh, for other uh, other things uh, that people are creating in relation to candidates, um, ballot questions, uh, and other election-related material, uh, if it's if it's not an ad, we we still ask for disclaimers, um, but the the penalties are uh, much much smaller uh, and more uh, more in line with uh, the. 
the impact. Sure. So, so the, the, we also define AI in one of our bills, and it's a bipartisan bill package uh, with myself and a few other colleagues. Uh, but it, what we're doing is trying to address the fact that um, AI-generated uh, images and sound uh, is almost indistinguishable uh, right now from real images. And we want to um, protect our elections um, and our democracy um, from misinformation. Yeah. You know, I played a little bit earlier in the show the example that you used to support introducing the bill uh, in the house of uh, Joe Biden. I say with air quotes because it was AI generated uh, discussing things. And yeah, to my ear, especially if you're listening passively, maybe over a phone or a lower resolution device, it can be really difficult on first listen to understand a difference. But what triggered your interest in even uh, contemplating this bill or introducing it in the first place? Over the summer, I was just reading articles about um, AI and um, how it was uh, developing and emerging so quickly. And I, I started looking things up and seeing, you know, how uh, impactful uh, these these images could be um, on on our elections, on the news, um, on all sorts of things. There was an instance where an AI-generated image um, crashed the market for um, yeah. for a little while. So, um, you know, clearly the, this this has the potential to um, impact and disrupt elections. Um, and I'm I'm the elections I'm chair in the House right now, so um, I'm always looking um, at things that are emerging um, in the elections world. Uh, And this definitely seemed like something that needed um, to be addressed. Yeah, when you think about things that can trigger a crash on the stock market, uh, that would be something that would bring a lot of our attention to things. As Again, we're speaking with Representative Penelope Cernoglu, who introduced a bill right now to target deepfakes or the campaign ads that use artificial intelligence. And as you were mentioning, your bill, as I understand it, only requires disclosure uh, but does it place right. any other restrictions on AI-generated content? And if it doesn't, do you think this is sufficient considering, again, something that has the power to take down an entire stock market? So we we do have a lot of um, requirements related to those disclosures uh, and and different kinds of disclosures depending on uh, what you know what what exactly you're putting out there. Um, and to answer your, your question, I don't know for sure right now. This is a, a, a fairly new technology um, that is growing very quickly. Uh, so we, what we are, the balance we're trying to strike right now is um, we, we, want, uh, we don't want to stifle anyone's um, expression. Uh, we want people to continue to be able to express themselves um, however they, you know, they, they feel uh, that they, they need to. But with that said, we need to make sure that voters uh, have the the correct information and are protected from complete forgeries and um, anything that is not real. Um, so, so we are, you know, having various requirements. Um, for example, if it's audio, you have to speak the disclosure. Um, if there's an image, it has to be on there in in a font that people can read and, and clearly see. Um, so, so we're hoping that, that this will um, this will result in uh, a lot discouraging anyone who yeah. wants to uh, mislead voters. Same as a paid for by um, 
for example, on, on a yard sign. If you're a campaign committee, you know that you have to put it there. And, and with this, if you're a campaign committee and you want to create something that's false, you're going to know that you have to put this um, disclaimer on there. Um, so for anyone who wants to follow the law, shouldn't be a big deal, um, should become part of uh, your, your uh, you know, campaign handbook so to speak, and hopefully this will discourage um, bad actors or people who aren't looking to violate the law but are looking to do whatever they can within it um, just to advance their own campaign. Yeah, and you talk about discouraging bad actors. I mean, we got a little bit into the uh, penalties of this. You know, we want to learn a little bit more about the bill, your inspirations behind it. And when we return on Detroit Today, we will continue our conversation with Representative Penelope Cernoglu. We're talking about a new bill that's looking to target campaign ads that use artificial intelligence, a rise of the ability to generate content we refer to as deep fakes, things that impersonate other people, has folks concerned one of the reasons why Democratic Representative Penelope Cernoglu, who joins us right now on the phone, was a sponsor of the bill uh, so that she could try to help our elections out. It's something that folks are concerned with. Uh, one person who has a little bit of experience with that I want to bring into the conversation right now, it's Bob in Detroit. Detroit. Bob, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Um, yeah, just I uh, do some video production, and uh, we needed to redo some voiceover work for, for uh, a project. And uh, my editor said, "Well, we don't need to bring the guy back into the booth because I can just I've got three seconds of his voice. I can totally make him say whatever we want." And this was a few months ago, and it blew us away that we could take thirty seconds of somebody's voice. And then basically make them do whatever we wanted, say whatever we wanted, and it was very easy. And this is a you know very accessible software, and now you can do it with mouse and eyeballs, and you can you know totally change things. It's very easy. And it's it's terrifying. Yeah, yeah, no, Bob. I appreciate that hands-on experience that you let us know. Again, a lot of us haven't had interaction with this technology. I know that's one of the things that you are looking to battle with this bill, uh, Representative. But the question that I have for you, I guess, is, you know, right now, a lot of things that we have concern with in terms of outside money coming into our elections. And I know that the... Um, the the penalties that we have here, some might say they don't go for, far enough. So what would you say to someone who was concerned about whether it was enough of a disincentive, uh, again, to um, uh, creation things when you have people who are bringing in money out of state or ads that are coming in from out of state? Is there any requirement that there's a check by whomever would air the ad, for example, or not being able to put on an ad that doesn't have uh, a disclosure on it? How would that work for you in this bill? Well, the bill does exempt um, TV news broadcasts, um, TV stations, um, radio stations um, from um, from penalties um, when someone's putting a paid ad on there, uh, because we're not looking to punish um, those uh, those stations if they are unknowingly putting mm-hmm. these things out there, um, because they really wouldn't know uh, if these things are AI-generated um, or fake. However, a lot of uh, platforms are actually regulating themselves right now, and that seems to be um, the trend. Um, Google um, has a whole uh, policy now about AI-generated content um, in relation to ads, um, and other platforms are um, following suit. 
we, we, we've heard from both sides um, on whether it goes far enough or if it goes too far. Um, so we're really trying to balance that out and um, hope that we have found, um, found the right balance uh, with what we're putting forward. And like any other um, laws out there, we, if, if we see that something needs to be changed um, as we move forward, um, we can certainly do that. Um, but we did want to ensure that something um, was in place um, for the next election cycle as things are already um, starting to um, heat up and take off um, with elections um, as, as they do. Uh, and this technology is already here. Um, so, so we wanted to uh, ensure that it is um, regulated in, in some way. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And one of the things that I think, you know, a lot of us think being proactive when it comes to creating legislation uh, never works out for or it can only hurt you. Right. Uh, the ability for it to help you can be tough in terms of political uh, uh, ramifications. That's why we do appreciate when folks think they see a problem trying to make sure that's an opportunity to do something about it if you're like, hey, I think that we should uh, uh, try to deal with this problem. Uh, Rep, before I let you go, I got one more question from a call that's uh, directly related to this. It's specifically Jeff uh, in Detroit. Jeff, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Thank you, Nick. I have a question for the representative. I am concerned that ads may incorporate both real and fake sounds and images. Would your bill require identifying exactly which sounds and images are fake? No, um, it would just ha it would have to say that the um, ad was created um, in part um, using AI. All right. Very good. Jeff, I appreciate the call. I appreciate the response. Representative, before I let you go, I did want to jump in and ask you, you're serving your first term in the Michigan House right now. Thanks for running, by the way. What have you found most surprising from your time uh, joining this legislative body? I think what is most surprising is just how how much is going on and how quickly. Um, for me, that, that, that was uh, a lot to, to become accustomed to. Uh, but uh, I, I, I'm happy to be um, in yeah. the legislature and experiencing all of it. Um, and I, I knew there was going to be a, a lot, a lot there, but there, there is just so much information um, and so many things happening um, all at once. So, so that was a little bit surprising, just how much there really was uh, that you have to be familiar with and um, learn about and uh, really just uh, keep up with. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate you giving us some of your time here. I know that you have uh, your fitness into uh, your legislative duties over there. So we'll give you opportunity to let go. But thanks again for joining us. Penelope Cernoglu, Democrat representing the 75th District and the Michigan House of Representatives. Thank you for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank Bye. you. And now as we move in, we want to loop in or discuss a broader, get a broader understanding of how uh, these things are affecting some of the ethical concerns that are raised by uh, this advancing technology that we have in our uh, that could be affecting our democracy, could be affecting our politics, could be affecting propaganda specifically. And to do that, we're joined by a great guest, speaking specifically of Jovana Davidovich, who is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Jovana, welcome to Detroit Today. 
Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm glad to have you here because when I think about uh, this issue of false and misleading ads in terms of AI, one of the things that I think back about is that people have been creating false, misleading, disinformation ads for ages. So for you, what is it about the use of generative AI or emerging technologies that makes them feel different to people or are different in terms of using these tools as to the other tools that we had in our toolbox before? Um, so there are two, I think, key differences. One is just the sheer volume um, at which these sorts of um, fake news or deep fakes can be created. And the volume is so large that it has effect on the volume of true news. So it sort of affects our total access to, to true news. Um, the other key difference is that in the past, you know, propaganda that, you know, somebody might have made in the 1940s or 1950s, um, you know, we could have uh, tried to find evidence against it very easily. Deep fakes provide a threat to our ability to trust their visual perception, which is one of the key sources of information and evidence for how we form beliefs and the beliefs that we then act on. So the, the sheer volume and the sort of democratization, the ability for almost anyone to create deep fakes, together with the fact of the type they are, so they can be audio, of course, as well, but especially the visual ones, um, really undermine our own ability to trust our own eyes. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's, it's, hard to, uh, it's hard to compare it to past cases, I think, of propaganda. We need new tools. Um, and new ways of thinking about how do we battle this. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things that uh, we were talking with the representative about. One of the ways that she's attempting to battle this is through the use of a disclaimer. Uh, maybe that would chill or uh, incentivize people not to create these things or knowing that if they did, they'd have to put a disclaimer on it. For you, when it comes to thinking of it from your discipline and ethics and, and, and the the use of a disclaimer, is that effective? Do you think that that's the proper way of thinking of it? Is it a good tool? What would you say to someone who says a disclaimer should be good for battling this type of misinformation? I mean, I think it's right. I think it's, I, I, I think disclaimers on its own and legislative solutions on their own don't seem like the total solution. But luckily, you know, we don't need legislation to solve all our problems. Uh, as, as Representative Cernigal mentioned, there are uh, big platforms, Google, Meta, Facebook, uh, are trying to self-regulate as well. And so I think this is a genuine, serious, and one of the biggest threats, I think, to our democracy today. And so it can't be just uh, local legislation or federal legislation. We need sort of a three-pronged approach. One is straight-up education. So that's the job of people like me, people like you. So education at the individual level is one aspect of that. I think the second aspect is industry regulating themselves. Um, Meta, for example, uh, is going further than disclaimers. Meta is, has committed themselves to removing misleading uh, videos, videos that make people look like they said something they didn't say and that use generative AI. Those are the two conditions that uh, videos in particular and audio that somebody might post on, let's say, Facebook or Instagram, uh, that's sufficient to remove them. Um, DSA, which is a Digital Services Act in the European Union, is going to hold them to it. So while the DSA doesn't require that they remove uh, such media, once Meta says that that's a part of their code of conduct, 
DSA can hold them to it. Mm. Um, and then finally, we have local uh, legislation and federal legislation and state legislation that can help us be a part of that puzzle. So that's a roundabout way of saying, I think disclaimers, um, you know, disclaimers at a state level uh, don't seem like the sole solution, but working together with education and industry regulating themselves um, strike me as a good sort of package. You know, I want to dive in a little bit more to industry regulating itself in just a moment, but I also want to join another voice into the conversation right now, specifically Josh Goldstein, who is a research fellow at Georgetown Center for Security and Emergency Technology, also known as CSET. Uh, he's been working a lot in terms of generative chatbots, in terms of how that spreads in uh, social media, as we've been discussing just right now as we pivoted into. Josh, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here, too, because I asked uh, Yovana a bit ago about disinformation being with us for a long time and how it's different when it comes to AI. Uh, in terms of what you've done research in and AI language models, how's diff what's different about generating this misleading content, this disinformation now for you, as opposed to the tools we had in the past? Yeah, I think it's a great question and place to start. Um, when researchers have thought about how language models could change the way that propaganda campaigns are run. Um, they've mostly broken it out into three different features. So first, uh, language models could change the speed and the scale of content generation. Uh, right now, if you want to generate a lot of content for a propaganda campaign, let's say a covert propaganda campaign on social media, uh, you need real people to write the content for you. And that takes time uh, and it takes money. And often what we'll see in influence operations on social media platforms is the, the use of what's known as copy pasta. And that's copy and pasted repeated text across accounts. It's a way to spread a lot of information, but it doesn't look very persuasive because uh, it, it almost looks like spam when it's repeated across so many different accounts. Now, if you have a language model, you don't need to use copy pasta because you could ask a model to rewrite a given message for you in different words, um, which may look more like real public opinion. You can do that very quickly. Um, and if you don't need as many people to wage a propaganda campaign to actually write the content, it may make the campaigns less discoverable. Because one way that we currently discover these campaigns is investigative journalism. Journalists will apply for jobs at troll farms, they'll interview propagandists, so we'll learn about the operational behaviors. But with a language model, you can quickly scale content generation, and you don't need as many humans to do it. So that's the first main feature. Um, the second is the quality of the text. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about research into how persuasive content from language models really is. Uh, and the third aspect is personalization. Right now, if you want to wage a propaganda campaign and personalize the content to your target demographic, you need information. You need uh, linguistic cultural fluency. Um, and we've seen personalized propaganda campaigns in the past. In 2016, um, Russia's Internet Research Agency created fake accounts that pretended to be members of the American uh, public that were of specific demographic groups. And then they spread content that they thought would be um, attractive or persuasive to those different groups. If you have a language model, you could potentially create much more personalized propaganda without having that same background, the same linguistic or cultural fluency. And in the future, we may even see one-on-one uh, -on -one dynamic influence operations where accounts are responding to people in real time or 
um, using chatbots to interact in uh, a conversational fashion. So those, those are the three main features that researchers have highlighted. But I think it's also important to, uh, to raise a bit of skepticism and play the other side. So in terms of quantity, there's already a lot of misinformation out there. Um, it could be that language models um, increase that and it has a significant impact on the information environment. But we shouldn't assume just because the information exists that it will necessarily persuade people. Um, there's a new article in the Harvard Misinformation Review, which is trying to highlight some of that skepticism to make sure we don't engage in threat inflation. Yeah, well, that is that is something that I think we have a lot of concern about. You even mentioned, of course, uh, when something seems more personal, something seems more targeted to you, it can have a better uh, influence on us. But another word that you used was propaganda, which is a word I hear a lot. And I want to jump to you, Yovana, because uh, when I think of propaganda, you know, I wonder how should we actually define it, make sure we're talking about the same thing, because is propaganda, how is it different from just an argument made by the side I don't agree with. How do we define what propaganda is so we're all on the same page? So I, I, I would define propaganda as something that in addition to trying to influence you has either a nefarious intent or has some element of manipulation um, attached to it. And so then the question becomes, okay, well, when do I feel manipulated? What sorts of uh, what sorts of information, either the types of information or the way information is conveyed to me, are meant to be manipulative? And that's a really difficult question. Um, I take it that deep fakes without disclaimers are an excellent example of something that would be manipulative. But there's a whole range of examples, you know, in between uh, that are hard to hard to identify as whether or not they're manipulative. So not sure how helpful that is. Uh, mm -hmm. You just moved the conversation from propaganda <laughs> to manipulation. All right. <laughs> it, well, it does give us a, a base of understanding of this. And we will continue talking with Professor Jovana Davidovich as well as Josh Goldstein of CSET when we continue on Detroit Today. We're talking about artificial intelligence, the use in political ads, the effects it could have on our democracy. As Michigan's looking to target it, the House of Representatives has a new bill that would target campaign ads that use artificial intelligence. We want to figure out how big of an issue it is, what it looks like in our modern society, what it might look like moving forward, the ethical concerns related to it. And to do it, I got two great guests with me right now with all of us, uh, Yovana Davidovich, an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa, as well as Josh Goldstein, a research fellow at Georgia Center for Security and Emerging Technology. And Josh, looping you back into the conversation, you mentioned that there's some questions about the effectiveness when it comes to just generating uh, chat bots or, ch or chat, generating text to influence people with propaganda. What studies did you conduct? What did you find uh, related to the effectiveness of this? I worked with a team at Stanford, uh, Jason Chow, Shelby Grossman, Alex Stamos, and Michael Tom. And we ran a set of survey experiments to look at can language models write uh, propaganda that's as persuasive as the type of content we see in current campaigns. So what we did is we uh, started with a data set of articles that were uncovered as part of either Russian or Iranian covert propaganda campaigns. So th these were articles that were written by um, what we call byline personas, uh, authors that don't actually exist. 
And then we had a language model. Um, it's called GPT-3. It's um, one of OpenAI's models from a previous generation. We had GPT-3 generate articles on the same topics. So we then had both original propaganda articles and AI-generated propaganda articles on the same topics. And we ran a survey experiment on over 8,000 Americans um, and found that uh, the original propaganda was very persuasive. When people didn't see the propaganda, only 24% of people agreed or strongly agreed with the thesis statement. That's the main point of the article. When we showed people the original propaganda, 47% agreed, so it almost doubled agreement. And the AI, uh, it performed only a few percentage points worse than the original propaganda. And this was with no curation. So we just took the first three articles that the model generated on each of the six topics and used them for the experiment. Mm. Now, in practice, you might actually involve a human in the loop, right? Uh, there might be a human who's looking at the output and saying, does, does this make the argument that we wanted? And if not, they wouldn't use the content in the campaign. So we mimic different um, what researchers would call human-machine teaming strategies, such as discarding articles that go off point, or selecting the best article um, among a few options for each topic. And then the uh, AI-generated content was as persuasive, at times even more persuasive than the original propaganda. So what we find is that, yes, language models can write content that is or generate content that's as persuasive as the type of content we see in existing campaigns. Uh, before the break, I raised a bit of skepticism in that, uh, in practice, Research also finds that uh, campaigns on social media often don't have a big persuasive effect. So there's been uh, research into uh, Russia's efforts in 2016 that, that finds that people who interacted with content from the Internet Research Agency didn't change a number of important political views compared to those who don't. Yeah, and the so, Internet um, Research Agency, by the way, is just Russia's kind of arm of just folks who generate a bunch of propaganda for the Internet in a building in St. Petersburg, right? That's right. Go ahead, as you were continuing. Go ahead. Uh, so I, I think on the one hand, it's important to recognize that, yes, these tools pose new challenges. They can quickly generate content that's as persuasive as the type of content we see in these propaganda campaigns. On the other hand, we don't want to engage in sort of exaggeration or threat inflation and assume that just because these campaigns exist means that they'll actually change people's minds in the real world. Mm. In the real world, you may see content from one of these campaigns, but you'll, you'll likely see even more content from news um, sources or other outlets. So we, we want to both recognize the threat, but then also keep it in perspective. And we also want to figure out, as that might scale up as technology gets better, what we can try to do uh, to uh, shield ourselves from that, to make sure that we don't have issues with it. But the effectiveness is something that a lot of us are interested in right now, especially coming up on an election. But I'm interested in taking calls. That's why I've got Glenn from LaSalle Garden. Glenn, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, so this, this, these AI-created uh, uh, pros and... And uh, I, I really was thinking about the idea of uh, robocalls. Mm. So you got AI creating robocalls, and then you can personalize them because you have information. And so you get this robocall going out to people. Well, then all of a sudden you have a market for people that get robocalls to create their own AI device that listens and talks to this other AI device, and it figures out is it real or not real. And then if it isn't 
if it is and uh, isn't real and it is an AI device, then it can play along with them and just waste its time on your phone line. And uh, who cares? And all these bots can be talking to each other. And then the rest of us, the human beings, can get back to talking to our human beings. Ah, I see. You <laughs> deploy a trick bot to get everybody caught in some doom loop of bots chatting to bots, and we and they never interact with us. I mean, I like the strategy, Glenn. I feel like uh, it's a recipe for disaster because they'll still get outside of their uh, little doom loop. But I heard a chuckle there. Uh, go ahead with if any response that you had. Uh, I, I, it's an interesting question and kind of uh, leads down the avenue of what do our information systems uh, or our, our different forms of communication look like um, in a world where these tools are so widespread. Um, I think that the perhaps the solution is, is the number a recognized number? Can we better filter out spam numbers? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know the, the telecommunication space, but it's akin in some ways to AI-generated content on social media. So there's not just the content. There's also the infrastructure. You need to get the information to a target. Um, In many cases on social media platforms, that will look like who's the account that's sending the message. Um, And many of the the mitigation tools we have for AI-generated propaganda on social media platforms are content agnostic, meaning it doesn't matter if the content is AI-generated or human-generated. It's things like, are accounts coordinated? Are they uh, created in bulk? Um, are they being run by a single person or from a single location? Um, so I think part of the uh, picture when we're addressing AI-generated content is not just the content, but it's also the infrastructure and trying to create higher uh, standards and verification for some of that infrastructure. Yeah, 313-577-1019 to jump into the conversation. Professor Davidovich, I want to get back to you because something you said a little bit earlier as I think about uh, Josh and what he's talking about there in, in, in regulation in the regulation space was industry regulation. You were talking about how a lot of social media companies, uh, we should rely on some self-regulation. I do believe some out in the audience would be concerned about the effectiveness of self-regulation as we have seen in other industries where maybe it doesn't go quite as well as we would want when people say they're going to self-regulate and then end up maybe not doing it as much. I think Wall Street is a big example of when you had the housing crash and and also is a big example. Um, And when it comes to these ads, though, not all of them are in social media. So when it comes to how you would, for example, a, a television ad or an ad that plays on radio or is just passed around, uh, when it comes to self-regulation, industry regulation, what would you say for folks who have that concern about the effectiveness or voluntary, uh, how much voluntarily uh, these industries will self-regulate? What response would you have to those concerns? So, yeah, I don't think that all industries or industries solely self-regulating would provide a solution to this problem. Um, it's really a part of of what I sort of discussed as a three-partite strategy and adding the last scholar's Glenn's point about uh, potentially also uh, using technological solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a education, technological solution, if and when they become available, we're still not at a good place for identifying many deep fakes. Um, and then industry self-regulation and then legislation. And so think about the way that uh, the DSA, the Digital Services Act, 
is intended to work with um, self-regulation of industry. So that's, again, big platform, social media platform. But the way it's intended to work is to enforce their own codes of conduct. So that's one of those cases where, yes, it's self-regulation, but once the code of conduct goes up, we have enforcement uh, on part of uh, the EU in this in this case. Now, your question was about, okay, well, what about all these other media outlets like, yeah. you know, TV, radio, and so on? Um, I think the 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 legislation that the representative Sinulu suggested uh, makes sense. So in that case, you would rely on individuals to identify something as being, let's say, a deep fake, uh, but not having a disclaimer. Uh, and the reason that's, I think, okay, um, we don't so we don't need self-regulation is simply because the volume is not the same as in social media. So the amount of people you can get uh, is not the same as you can get with social media, nor is the personalization the same. And therefore, just shooting from the hip and 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 being cognizant of what Joshua said about effectiveness before, uh, it might not be as effective. Uh, one single video, you know, uh, going out to bring broadcast to. Uh, 10,000 people is not going to be as effective as personalized deep fakes, let's say. Yeah. You know, so I think I, I know I was just saying, I really appreciate that point that you brought up there. Uh, it's the scalability. It's also about the, the effectiveness the changes from medium. But something that you also brought up that it just made me think of right now is also we're talking about who we hold responsible for these misleading ads uh, and, and false ads. I'm thinking about when AI generated ads, you have the person who created it or the people the political party who benefits from misleading ads or the company or technology, the creators who created the technology that's leveraged to make the misleading ad consumers. We talk about consumer responsibility for taking an ad. And then of course the institutions or the government who's tasked with regulating the ads when it comes to distribution of responsibility for these misleading ads, then professor, uh, how, how would you think that that should uh uh, disperse like uh, does it change depending on the content do you have an idea of whom should be most responsible where we should lay the responsibility uh, for these things yeah i think that the develop the developers of this together with the knowing distributors uh, of this should both hold responsibility because we want to think to ourselves in this particular case what are the pressure points where can we put pressure to minimize the effects of this so it's not just a question of who is you know deep deep down inside morally responsible the question is where can we put pressure, uh, pressure in the form of fines and potentially even imprisonment with these laws, um, to disincentivize uh, the creation and the distribution of this type of uh, videos and, and audio? And so, you know, I think that the ad, um, the, sorry, the legislation does put the onus both on, even though I know Representative Sinegal said that, um, you know, they're, they're not intending to go after media. But the, the law does uh, put the onus both on the developers and anyone who knowingly uh, distributes this. So that would also, to me, sounds like uh, news outlets, media outlets, platforms that knew that this was uh, deepfake and still distributed it would still be on the hook. However, I wonder if this provides an incentive for, let's say, a news outlet not to look too close, right? <laughs> right. Uh, and so I, I wonder if there's some sort of finagling of this uh, legislation that, that can address that. Yeah, yeah. I want to go to Joe in Rochester Hills. Joe, got about a minute. Go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, question around what are the top three or four propaganda setters 
um, in the globe. And are they state actors or are they private? Um, and you can include Democratic, Republican parties, uh, et cetera. And then uh, with that said, what's ne- the next level? Mm. You know, I, I, defining that might be a little bit of trouble, but I don't know if that's something that you've gotten into, Josh, in terms of your research in that space. Uh, do you know what we're looking at in terms of major propaganda centers and, and what they're doing right now? It's hard to pinpoint three or four top centers. Um, there's a, a mix of some of the different types of actors you've described. So there are um, major troll farms that are either run by governments or government adjacent. We mentioned the Internet Research Agency before as an example. Um, there's also a global marketplace of what we call disinformation for hire firms. These are marketing, um, political uh, relations firms that will run campaigns on behalf of often political clients um, or even businesses. So it, it's a mix of, of different actor, actor types. But one reason why it's a question that's so hard to answer is because in the, the realm that I study, covert influence operations, people are trying to keep their tracks hidden. Yeah. So we don't have a strong sense of um, what's the denominator, what's the universe of all of these influence operations out there. We only know those that either researchers or social media companies are able to find, detect, and announce. So there's a lot of uncertainty in this area. Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty in this area, and it's emerging space, so we'll have to keep monitoring, monitoring it as we move forward. Josh Goldstein, Research Fellow at Georgetown's uh, CSET, thank you for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you very much. And Professor Davidovich, thank you for making time to join us as you are a professor again at the University of Iowa in philosophy. Thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and me, Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Podcast editing by David Lyons. And our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET in Detroit. You can support the show by leaving a rating or a comment. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.